0: So, hey, we're week number two of Finding Christmas. It's sort of our, our Advent series, if you will, or we call it our Christmas series around here. And uh, let me just kind of back up and give you a global view of what we're doing these next few weeks and what we did last week. So we're saying that Christmas has a challenge, and the challenge is represented by, by what we see up on the, on the back wall there. And I know if this is your first time here, you're going, wow, Christmas came and it threw up at Crosswinds. Um <laughs> And all those all those things up there represent represent the holiday, represent Christmas crashing in upon us, all the expectations, all the presents, all the food, all the relatives, all the pressure, and and a search for something that's meaningful. And what we're saying at the heart of Christmas, if we can get past of all that stuff, and let's get if you can pull the lights up for me, we wanna say it's Christ. It's Christ, and, and that light should come up right on that... There it is. It kind of is. Anyway, there's a, there's a switch that Anyway, so... Obsessive about this. <laughs> so that's what our focus is. How are we going to find... How are we going to find that peace from God, that presence of God, that... Jesus. In the midst of all this insanity which, which we have. So last week we said one of the things we're going to have to do is we're going to have to find Christmas in the rush. So if you weren't here last week... I mean, you know the rush. You know the pressure. If you weren't here last week... It's online, you can go listen to it. Today we're going to talk about finding Christmas in, in the shadow, and we'll talk about more of that in a moment. Next week, we're going to talk about finding Christmas in dysfunction, and we do that because all of our families are going to get together, and it's all going to come to the top, because that's what happens when you bring family together, we're all broken, we're all hurt people. The island of misfit toys is every single one of us, we're members of it, so we're going to talk about that. And then on Christmas Eve, we're going to talk about Christmas in the hearts, okay? So today, it's, it's finding Christmas in the shadows, and... Um, there was a show that got, first came on, it's been on every single year, since 1965. And it's just comes out one, one time a year, and uh, it used to be on one of three channels. Now it's on one of a billion channels, and it's probably on more often than I know it. But um, I'm amazed when I watch this. The show, by the way, was... Uh, whoop! I got ahead of myself. I didn't know it was going to go straight to play. <laughs> All right, so... I want to show you this clip from from Charlie Brown's Christmas, and the reason I'm showing it to you is not because of how bad it is, and by the way, every year I watch it, the worst, man, that is so bad. How did we watch that when we were kids? And we thought it was the best ever, Um, but compared to today's technology, it's suffering a little bit. So it may be rough, but it is brilliant. It is brilliant when it came to explaining and understanding Christmas and what some of our struggles are. So, so it's, it's a short clip, but you know, pay attention to Charlie Brown and the questions he's asking. Watch this. I think there must be something wrong with me, Linus. Christmas is coming, but I'm not happy. I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. I just don't understand Christmas, I guess. I like getting presents and sending Christmas cards and decorating trees and all that, but I'm still not happy. I always end up feeling depressed. Actually, Lucy, my trouble is Christmas. I just don't understand it. Instead of feeling happy, I feel sort of let down. He just nails it, doesn't he? He, He's saying, hey, I get all this. I like all this, but when I'm done with it, I'm still empty, I'm still not happy, it's not filling me up, it's not working. Christmas is coming, and I'm not happy. I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. What is he saying? He's saying, there's this shadow. There's this darkness that I can't seem to penetrate, and, and doing the holiday isn't making it, and I don't understand what I'm supposed to do. I don't understand where I'm supposed to go. I don't understand how I'm supposed to make sense of it. And it's not just a kid thing, it's an adult thing. Lots. Of, I, my wife saw that, and she goes... He's looking at his bills, isn't he? <laughs> right after, after Christmas. I don't know, Lori, but there is a shadow, and maybe it is a financial shadow, or maybe there's some other kind of thing taking place in his life that makes it hard and to navigate and find his way through from one point to another. And it's not just about Christmas. It's Christmas is just a day. It's about it's about life. It's about navigating our whole lives, and and some of us at different levels feel like we're shadow boxing our way through it all the time. Right? Now, let me just ask you a question. I'm gonna guess the answer is yes, but do you know the shadows you're facing right now? Do you have a do you have an inkling of what it is? Can you name it? My guess is some of them are just challenges, like like the brother I live with a brother who's perfect. Right? And I and I'm and I've got a dead end job and I'm overwhelmed by it. That's a shadow. And it comes out a little darker Christmas time form apparently in, in in the drama. But but a lot of us are facing dark situations. I remember in um, 1998, October 25th, my mom passed away. Well, two months later, we're doing Christmas, the first Christmas without her. Can I tell you, in that Christmas, there was a darkness to it. There was a shadow to it. I'd never navigated that before. Some of you were in, in chapters like that. Some of you are facing stuff with your kids, stuff with your brothers, stuff with your family. Some of it's health stuff, some of it's financial stuff, some of it's just stuff stuff that I don't even know about. But you know what it is. And the question is, can you still celebrate, can you still find Christmas in the midst of all that? So let's rewind the clock and look at the Christmas story again. It's found in Luke 2, 1 through 7. And I'm going to connect the Christmas story to some shadow stuff. Okay, so here we go. At that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. Right, that's how Luke starts it. This was the first census, census taken when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral lands to register for the census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of North, excuse me, of Nazareth which was in the north, (laughs) Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary to whom he was engaged and who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. We're going to stop there. Now, Christmas Eve, we're going to unpack that in a whole new way. But today, I just want to connect with you. There was a very, very dark part of that passage. Did you Did you recognize it? Did you recognize the shadow? Because it it comes out in the very first verse. It comes out that Jesus is born in the shadow. Let me show it to you again. At that time, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. You want to know the darkness, the shadow that all of Israel was under? It was Rome. The Roman Empire included them, all the way from Rome down to them. You know, these people minding their own business in the Middle East. And suddenly... Suddenly, they're under the Roman Empire, and there's Roman soldiers everywhere. Israel was living in the shadows of an occupation. They didn't have their own rules, their own laws. They had to follow, in addition to their religious stuff, which they were given freedom to practice, they had to live under the heel of Rome. Right? So they were oppressed, and they felt powerless. Now, here's what happens. When I read the Bible, I don't catch that all the time. I go right past Caesar Augustus and the census and that he was making me go back to Bethlehem in order to pay taxes. That was the point of the census. Right? And, and I forget that a Roman soldier can come up and abuse you and push you around and throw his package and say, hey, you walk and carry my stuff for me. You know, a mile or so. And I, I had no idea. And so all of Israel was saying, this isn't right This isn't what God created. This is our land, not Rome's land. We're not meant to be, we're God's people. We're not meant to live under this kind of oppression and this kind of shadow land. We're God's kids, right? So they were longing for this promised Messiah that was in Scripture. And this Messiah would come and do things that we don't think of Jesus doing. He would come and he would be the military leader that would overthrow Rome. He would be Moses, number two. He would take us away from Egypt, number two, which is Rome. They were occupied and oppressed. Unless you can put yourself in that position, you might go, well, it was just this old little town of Bethlehem. How cute, silent night, how sweet. It wasn't that way at all. It was rough. It was depressing. It was dark. It was living with with places to hide so you could escape the Romans. It was shadow land. Now, they had their own king. Because Caesar Augustus placed herod who was jewish as a tetrarch basically a puppet king his he was there at the pleasure of rome but herod was called the king of the jews that was his title he was he was jewish but he was sort of jewish the way some people are sort of christian you know what i mean they might go to church once they, get, they got baptized they can point to they might practice some of the habits but you know that their hearts aren't in it you know that they're not really following god they're doing what's expedient to get along with the masses, right? So if you grew up in a Christian family, one that went to church, you go, but your friends go, so are you going to church? Well, yeah, my parents make me. Oh, yeah, I'm going just to keep mom happy. Yeah, I'm going because it's Christmas. Whatever those things are, it's it's sort of that participation. In fact, he really didn't care about being Jewish very much, even though he never ate pork, (laughs) even though he followed the dietary laws, even though he had synagogue, even though he kept the religious leaders happy. But that was really his goal. In fact, Herod was devoted to two things. First of all, keep Rome happy. You know why? Because if Rome's not happy, nobody's happy. Right? It's just like being married. Rome, you know, is you've got to make Rome happy. You've got to keep Augustus off your back. You've got to keep the Jews quiet, not rebelling, because the Roman Empire just wants things to operate the Roman way. And then the second thing is, He was very devoted to building his kingdom. Now, when I say building, I mean building. I mean from the ground up or sometimes remodeling or sometimes tearing down everything and building again. Herod the Great, and what a horrible name for him because you'll find out he wasn't a great guy. Herod the Great, Herod the King of the Jews, was a huge, ambitious builder. I'm just going to show you today. Now, this is the problem with sending your pastor to Israel. You know this, right? The problem with sending your pastor to Israel, he comes back and he goes, hey, I'm going to push Israel down your throat. So that's going to happen today. So here's what I want you to see. These are five spots I'm going to show you in a moment, and we're going to go through them very quickly, where Herod built his monuments to himself, his kingdom. Right? In his mind, this is going to be his mark in the world, his everlasting kingdom. And there's no doubt that that's how he was thinking because when you see the size, the monstrosity of what he did, it's just, it's just overwhelming. So I'm going to walk you through those five places. I'm going to tell you something. There's about eight more I could show you. And there's ones that I don't even know about the details of. He, he built in Athens. I had no clue. He was supposedly built something in Rome as well as the Middle East. So this guy was very, very ambitious. So where I'm going to take you first is just to Jerusalem. Right? So what did Herod build in Jerusalem? Help me out. Right, the temple. It wasn't the first edition. Right, Solomon built the first one, kind of in that spot. But Herod came and he built a temple. But when he rebuilt the temple again, he didn't build it to specs. He built it to his. He built it to dimension, much bigger than Solomon. Why would he do that? Why would he make everything bigger and grander? And the answer is because it's about him. It's about his kingdom. So, so his temple even included a place, uh, a little palace off the corner attached to it where he could live, right? So that's where Herod is, right near the, the temple and the courtyard there. So I found out that, that Israel has made stamps for many of these places. So if you look at the stamp, you can see a part of the temple area, right, that, that Herod built. And then you look next to it and you see it today and that's the Western Wall. That's what's left. That's where we prayed the other day. That's what these walls on the side represent, where some of us put our own prayers in, into the walls, where the Jewish people pray today. they call it, We call it the Wailing Wall. They just call it the Western Wall. So it is so grand, so huge, so big, that it put a mark in the world that this is a, a very prominent religion of Judaism. Okay, now we're not going to get stuck there because we've got to... Keep going. So let me take you to the second one. Now notice this time we went from Jerusalem and we go across the Dead Sea. We're in Jordan now. And there's a place there, and I might have messed up the name, but it's Mercurus. Okay? What does it look like? Well, it looks like this. It is a huge hill or mountain that's flat at the top, and at the top is, well, it was another palace, another fortress, another citadel. So that's that's This is a remodeling job, a rebuild job by him. There was something there before, but he took it down, and he made it, what would he do? He'd make it bigger to make a statement. By the way, that's where John the Baptist was when he was arrested. Not in Jerusalem, but all the way across the other side of the Dead Sea in Jordan today. That's where he was beheaded, and they took his head from there. Best of my reading. Most, most I can figure out, either back to Jerusalem, um, to, the, to the palace there, or to another palace that, that Herod had because right? Herod was telling his birthday with, with the Galileans. Right? Let me take you to another spot. So this one is right across the Dead Sea. Anybody know what I'm pointing at there? You've probably heard of it before. It's Masada. Right, This is where, at the end, this is one of his palaces. This is, by the way, another remodel, another rebuild job, much bigger. Um, at the top of this mountain that's been flattened off, he builds this incredible fortress Right, and and you start asking questions like, what's the middle of a desert? Where's the water coming from? And he had a system to get water all the way to the top and fill up huge reservoirs. They could host like a thousand people for 10 years as far as water goes. Right, so amazing kind of. Um, and you can get even closer to it. We were there. We were looking out. This is where when the Jewish revolt happened in like, you know, the and, and Jerusalem was destroyed about 69 A.D. This is where the last group of zealots, well, they thought there was the last group of zealots, of Jewish people, were hanging out there. This is where the, the Romans took three years to conquer them, built a ramp up to the top of that thing, came up and um, found all the Jewish people, said it would be better to be dead than to be captured by Romans. And the Romans were doing it, so it's, if you don't ever, you know, making a statement, don't ever cross Rome. Has a huge history lesson. There's, there's good movies about that, all that kind of thing. So that one made the stamp collection. By the way, the one in Jordan didn't make the stamp collection because it's not in Israel, it's in Jordan. So here's the stamp collection. You can see the, the, the way it was in Herod's day and how it kind of looks today. Right? Sort of falling apart. Let me take you to another one. This is an incredible one, Caesarea Maritima. Right? It's on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. So we're traveling. Look how far we're traveling as, as where he built. Right, So we go there. This is the most incredible thing ever. He built this entire marina. Right, That's the Hippodrome. That's where they did the races with the horses. It's huge. We, we were there. We, we stood. That's how it looks exactly today. It was a huge marina. He was the first one to really make use of, of cement that would quicken or harden or cure in water. So he decided to make his next big building project on the water. It included a theater, a tremendous theater. In fact, today they're still using it every so often. So um, now this is where, and it doesn't look like it used to, but when you look at that, you can see he put out a, a pier that was part of it, but on that pier he built his palace where he would stay. So just take a guess. See this little square part here? What do you think that was? Anybody? Most amazing thing ever. Surrounded by salt water, he put in a freshwater pool. He put a swimming pool right there. So you you look at this whole thing. Not only that, but there was no fresh water to be had. Right? So what did he do? He went eight miles away and built an aqueduct to bring water to him and to that city about 50,000. He was an incredible builder. Here's the stamps, and you can kind of see the whole marina area here, what he built, and then you see how it looks today, and you can still see a lot of it. And if you take a group of people from Crosswinds there, they'll let you wade in the water, and some of the people will disobey the rules and go swimming in the water, and then you as a leader will get very upset with them. (laughs) It'll ruin about two days of your life. Anyway, so, not that I'm not healed from that experience, I'm working on it. So that's Herod. I'm going to show you one more in a little bit. That's King Herod. And what I want you to catch is who this guy was just a little bit. He was incredibly ambitious. He took on huge nothing small ever for this guy. He was smart. You had to be. He married the right people to get in the position he was in. And he killed the right people to get in the position he was in. He was politically astute. Right? Because he had to keep... I mean, you know what his real motivation is? Doug, you say he was kind of like not real serious about his, his faith. Yeah, he wasn't. Not when you see who he killed and how he got there. But, but why did he build the temple? Because it would keep the Jews happy and the religious leaders in debt to him, right? Because he did this. He was insecure because great men are only great when they're humble. And you always have to protect your image, and you always have to chase, and you always have to build something bigger to make sure that you're still there. He was incredibly insecure. We know he was insecure, and we know he was cruel, because when his kids got to a certain age, he felt threatened about them, two sons, and their leadership potential, and what they were thinking about. So he put them to death because he wanted to keep his position. And He was afraid of them. He put his own sons to death. Augustus said, "It's better to be one of Herod's pigs than one of his kids, because he doesn't kill the pigs. He doesn't eat those. But if you're a kid, you're at risk." Right? He was a puppet. He was being managed by Augustus, managed by Rome. He was an egomaniac because nobody builds that kind of stuff and names things after themselves. Sometimes he'd name it after Caesar because that was smart. Sometimes it would be named after himself because he's an egomaniac, and he was incredibly rich. The taxes coming in and going out to build all those things, and he was actually fairly generous. He did things for some groups, right? But there's always a backside to every gift. That was Herod, King Herod the Great, maybe maybe misnomed, right? Now, I want you to look at what he did from just a different perspective for a moment, because it's unbelievable when you think about where, when and where he lived and what he did. The question always comes up, how did he move those big rocks? How did he build these things? Right? And the, part of the answer is slaves. Part of the answer is money and paying people. But when you look at King Herod the Great and his building projects, you find out that he built and moved mountains. I'm going to show you that in a moment. He created mountains where they weren't there, and he moved ones that were there into a different spot. And I'll show you that in just a moment. He put a swimming pool in a desert. I'm going to show you that in a moment, because I always showed you the other one. All right? He put a, a he built his palace in the sea. Right? You can't build there, there's no land. Oh, yes, I can. Oh, yeah, I can. I'm Herod. I can do that. In the middle of salt water, he created a freshwater pool. Right? He's just, One thing after the other, and this is kind of maybe one might be lost on us a little bit. He created his own living water. Instead of storing the water in in cisterns, he built an eight-mile aqueduct of moving water. And if you were here a few weeks ago, you know that when the water is moving and coming in fresh, that's called living water. What did Jesus say about himself? He was the water. Drink from me, and you'll never be thirsty again. He did all those things. Now I want to show you one more fortress, and this is why I'm going to show it to you. It's three miles from Bethlehem. It's three miles. It For some of us, that's like a half-hour run. For others of us, that's like a three-day run. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? So here's what it's called. It's 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 just outside of Bethlehem. It's called um, the Herodium, or Herodium. And I can never say these words right. So if you want to criticize me later, I'm open to it. It's all good. All right? But that's, or the Herodian, that's how I wanted to say it. I knew it wasn't coming out quite right. So who cares, because I can spell it. Um <laughs> Here's, here's what it looks like from a distance. right? So you know which one is where it is, right? It's the one in the background, that mountain in the background. See the mountain in the foreground? That used to be huge. But Herod cut it all apart and moved the dirt to the mountain behind it. He didn't want anything black in his view, and he wanted the biggest mountain. And on top of that, he built this incredible fortress. Right? And this does not do justice. This is an artist rendering. In a moment, I'll give you a picture so you can see it. But he had, a, he had a gardens. He had a bathhouse down at the bottom there. He had a freshwater place to swim. By the way, this is in the middle of a desert area. I mean, They just get half an inch of rain a year. Right? And then you go up the mountain, and that's where his palace was. Right? And this was, the, this was his place. Three miles from Bethlehem. When Jesus was born, when Jesus was born, it looked like that. Right? Here's what it looks like today. Right? It's, a, it's, it's still incredibly impressive, but it's ruins. All of these things I've showed you are all in ruins. And, and we went up to the top of that. And so just to give you perspective, that's inside the top part. And what I'm hoping that does is it gives you an idea of how huge. This really is. It's absolutely overwhelming when you're there. And, of course, that made the stamp collection, right? So you can see there's the, the bottom part where the pool would be. He had a tunnel going through it up to the top. Just unbelievable. And then, of course, how it looks today. So those are five of the places. There's about eight more. And all of these places, by the way, was part of a defense system. They were connected together. So they were, you know, you could tell they're at vantage points up at the top of the mountain. So if they looked and they saw an invading army coming, What did they they do? They could light a fire, a light. And then another one could see that one. And so all of a sudden the whole state of Israel, country of Israel, the nation is aware that something big is going on and they start to send their messengers. So that was all there. So here's all of that to say this. Herod was everywhere. Rome was in Herod. Rome was everywhere. The nation of Israel was in a shadow, and Bethlehem was in the shadow of the Herodian. It's amazing. Jesus was born an hour's walk away from this place. The shadow literally came to the edge of Bethlehem. right? So Jesus was born in the shadow of Herod's reign. And I don't know what shadows we're facing, but, but Jesus came and entered the shadows of that day. I think it helps gives us a little little bit of context. Now, when Matthew reports, I read Luke's version of, of kind of the birth, but when Matthew reports the story of Christ's birth, he talks about the wise men. And so that's found in Matthew 2. And here's what it says. It says that Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the reign of King Herod. And now you know there should be ominous music playing, right? If you had the music, it would really help you know that this is the shadow place. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands, probably Babylonian, where Israel was exiled at one time, eastern lands, arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? Pause there for a moment. They're in Jerusalem where Herod is, and they've got this caravan. It wasn't three guys. It was a large group. Because when you carry gold and other valuable things, you bring a little army with you to protect it. So so they're there, and there's these very wealthy guys from the out east with their own little tiny army with them. And they go to Herod and to people, hey, we're asking about where is the newborn king of the Jews? What's Herod feeling? (laughs) Right, what's he want to do? I want to know where the king of the Jews is too, this newborn king. I'm very interested in this, right? We saw his star. He's got a star? <laughs> what? He's got a star? By the way, for about 19.99, you can get your own star with your name on it. Just why, you know what, television. me. We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. Not just to honor him, to worship him. From what you just learned about Herod, do you feel the blood pressure rising? I mean, this is over the top, these guys, and and nothing he can do about it. So here's what it says, next verse. King Herod was deeply disturbed. Well, before they came, he was deeply disturbed, but after they came, he was angry and disturbed, right? And when he heard this, Excuse me. When he heard this, as was everyone in Israel, why was everyone else upset about it? Because they knew Herod. If it upsets Herod, it upsets them, right? And and eventually it's going to come back to Rome. So he called a meeting of the leading priests. That's Herod, right? And and the teachers of the religious law. And he said, Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? Why would he have to ask that question? He's a good Jew. He's read his Bible. He should have it memorized. He doesn't know where. He's not informed. Where is this supposed to happen? And they kind of explained Bethlehem and kind of coached him. And then Herod interviewed the wise men. So you guys, you're going to go and find him. And when did this happen? And how did it happen? And wow, you know what? Have a great trip. I hope you, I hope you have success. When you come back and you go through here, Stop in and tell me where he is. Save me the trouble. Draw me a map so I can go and worship him too. Right? So the teeth he had, he was lying straight through them. He had no intention of doing that. When it was time to leave, the Bible says, we're jumping forward now, when it was time for the wise men to leave, they returned to their own country by another route. For God had warned them, God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. Right? Well for obvious reasons that, that we know now. So Herod, Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. Pause there for a moment. Did the wise men outwit him? Not for a second. God was, God's hand was on Christ, on Jesus. God's hand was protecting him. He was the one who gave the dream. They just obeyed. They just did what the dream told them to do. But Herod felt outwitted, which, again, probably didn't make him happy. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, based on the wise men's reports. Okay, so he did the math, and they're males, and kings are always guys, so he goes, kill all the little babies. So who do you think went there? My guess is people who lived about three miles away in a fortress. That They took that three-mile walk, went to Bethlehem, and they probably killed six to a dozen children because Bethlehem wasn't that big and the age range wasn't that huge and they were all boys, and, and they killed them. Right? So sometimes you hear about people say, well, if that would have happened, we would have had some outside sources saying it would happen. Really? For six, 12 kids, maybe? I don't know. I don't know. That, I don't know the world took much notice of it in that day. It just happened. Right? So Herod's devotion to two things, keeping Rome happy and to building his kingdom. Here's a scary thing for me. I think I'm a lot like Herod, right? I want to keep the right authorities, the right people happy in my life. Sometimes I want to build my kingdom. Sometimes I create my own shadows. And sometimes I'm very devoted to those kinds of things. So let me tell you what happened to herod jesus by the way he was just fine he actually his dad had been instructed in a dream to go to egypt to hide out there until later on when herod died and then he would go back so what happened to herod well i just gave it away herod died and i know he died because i saw his sarcophagus that's at the museum in israel right and they found it at the herodium Right, and, and it was broken apart because some people found it before them, people probably closer to his time, and they hated that guy. And they broke it apart, and they probably took all his body out, threw it to the birds, and there's nothing there now except for this broken container for his body. And so, of course, the museum people glued it all back together and put it in the museum so we could see it today. That is literally his. That's where he was buried, is at that spot three miles away. Right? This became his tomb, not his monument. Herod died. Now, you know what happened next? Oh, this is so interesting. Herod stayed, died. <laughs> he did. A, my wife last night go, you know that's not the right grammar. <laughs> How long have you been married to me? Um, Herod died and Herod stayed, died. He stayed, forever died. He never Nothing else happened. And guess what his body did? His body decayed. It was probably thrown to the birds. There's nothing left of Herod. This king of the Jews is gone. Right? And his buildings aren't in very good shape either. They're decaying. And someday, 2,000 years from now, you won't even... You know, once upon a time, there used to be gravity, wind, rain, time. Everything we build, everything we do, this is kind of what Solomon said, it all goes away. And from God's perspective, it's just a moment or two, right? Now, what happened to the other king of the Jews? That little baby? His name was Jesus. He died too. Very different death, by the way. Herod, in his last days, was grossly obese. He he got some kind of he had worms coming out of parts of his body. You don't want worms coming out of. He was in deep pain. One time they thought he was dead. He actually passed out in a pool or something. He thought they thought he was dead, and everybody was rejoicing, and the noise was was coming. And when but he wasn't dead, and he came back too. And he was so upset that people were rejoicing. He realized that the Jews actually hated him, and they were going to rejoice upon the David's death. So he went and had all the prominent citizens of all the villages and towns taken into a prison in Jericho, and he stored him up there, and he said, when I die, and he knew it wasn't a very long way, when I do die, kill all those guys because I want the nation to weep on the day that I die. <laughs> nice guy. <laughs> you know? Wow. When Jesus died, people were weeping because they lost their Savior, the one they put their trust in, because they loved him. When Jesus died, it didn't last. This is the gospel. Jesus died for our sins on the cross of his own free will. This is, this is what he did as a king. He gave his life to his people. He wasn't building monuments for himself. He died. It didn't take. And the interesting thing is, everything he built is still here because there's no decay in Christ. You're going, well, what did he build? Doug? I don't see anything he built. It's you. It's me. This is called the church. The church isn't a building. It's all of us together. It never stops. It just keeps going and going and going. God has his hands on it because we're his people. And this is what Christ came so that we could be a part of it. Now, how does that help all of us in our shadows? Jesus entered history at a very dark time to a people that were living in a very big shadow. And it's exactly what God said he was going to do. Listen to what Matthew wrote. This is near the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. So he's older now, 30 years old or so. It says, when Jesus heard that John, John the Baptist, had been arrested, he left Judea and returned to Galilee. It's funny. He actually took the exact route, the trip back from where his parents came, where he was born, from Nazareth to Bethlehem. He went back, that's Judea, he went back from Judea to this exact same area. He went first to Nazareth, then and left there, and moved to Capernaum, which is on the Sea of Galilee, in the region of Zebulun and um, Naphtali. Now, if you're not familiar with those areas, you just need to know it's where Nazareth and Sea of Galilee is. That was the area that, that he went to. Those were two of the tribes, the area, the land that they were given. This fulfilled what God had said through the prophet Isaiah 750 years ago. In the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, beside the sea which is, that's a word for any body of water, right? Beyond the Jordan River, in Galilee, where so many non-Jews live, Gentiles, listen to this, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who lived in the land where death cast its shadow, a light has shined. What's he saying? These are shadow people. They were in the shadow and a great light has come to them and, and it shined right where they are. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins and do what? Turn to God. Don't let this get away from you. Turn to God. The kingdom of heaven is near. It's right here. It's right now. And it still is today. That was Isaiah 9, 700 years again before Jesus' birth. Now, when Matthew quoted it, everybody else would have Knowing what was coming next. I just want to remind you of what came next because we probably don't have it all memorized. Here's what it says next. For a child, Isaiah wrote, is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. They're saying the Messiah is coming. It's going to be a son. These are going to be his names. In his his government, and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of the ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies, the Lord of heaven's armies, in other words, God himself, will make this happy. Why will he do it? Because he's passionate. Because he loves. That's why he sent Christ. Let me take you back to the very beginning. Remember the genius of Charlie Brown? Christmas is coming and I'm not happy. I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. Some of us are are, going to go right through that. We're going to go through Christmas and go, I know this is supposed to make... I don't feel Christmas. Why are I feeling it? Can I just... You're not going to like this next part. Who said you were supposed to? Who said Christmas was a feeling? Who said Jesus died to make us feel better? Jesus is Prozac? Who said Christmas was supposed to be... Who... Who said that the shadow would be removed? Because as I look at my life, I'm going to be honest with you, I've gone through dark Christmases. I've gone through Christmases where I wasn't sure my daughter was going to live or die because she's in the hospital. I've gone through times where my own family is in dysfunction and there's nothing like Christmas to bring that to the top. Right? It's Life is messy. There are shadows. Jesus never said, I came to make you feel better. We're going to go through shadows. Here's what Jesus did say. He spoke to the people, John 8:12, once more, and he said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. See, here's what Jesus does. He goes, I know you're in the shadows. I'm going to come where you are, and you don't have to go alone. I'm right here, and I'll be your light. And we're going to go through the shadows together. I don't know about you. I'd rather have that. I'd rather have God with me. I'd rather have his direction, his leadership, his presence. I'd rather go through the shadows than feel good at Christmas, than let a holiday, because all of the stuff of Christmas disappears. It all disintegrates. Kind of like Herod's. Herod's buildings. Herod's legacy. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray. And I know that some of us are going through some shadows right now. And what we can do is we can pray for each other. And so I've asked a few people. or It's been arranged anyway. I didn't ask them, but... They're going to be up front by the trees. And if after the service, while people are exiting, you come forward and you say, would you pray for me? You can say, hey, I'm going through a shadow, and here's what it is, and make it two sentences because we don't want to do counseling sessions here. right? They will pray for you. They'll pray for God's presence in your life. They'll pray for you to sense God's leadership and his light. They'll pray for you if you want to, to surrender, help you surrender your life to Christ today. Maybe some of you can keep, I don't want your light, God. I'm going to use my light for my life and it's all shadow time. <laughs> His light's so much better. If you just go up and say, hey, I'm in a shadow, would you pray for me? They'll pray without even knowing what your shadow is. You don't have to disclose. But sometimes it's just really nice to have someone else pray for you. So let's pray together and then some of us will leave and maybe some of us will come forward for that prayer time. God, I think the right response is thank you. Thank you for Christmas. Not 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 all the lights and the presents and the holiday and the food, although that's all fun. Thank you that when everything else disappears, you're still here. Thank you that no matter how dark it gets, your light still shines. God, every single one of us wants to take you away. Take have you take away some kind of shadow in our life. But we'll also say, if, if you can't take it away, would you help light the way for us? Would you help us hold on to you? Because we know we've got to go through it. God, help us to learn the foolishness of Herod and the wisdom from your son who came to serve instead of be served. And God, help us to find Christmas in you. In Christ's name. Amen.